This morning, uh, I hope you are in Bible drill mode because we are going to be in literally dozens of places in Scripture today. But we will begin in Psalm chapter 72 or the 72nd Psalm, verses 18 and 19. We will read this verse together to set the tone for what we will do this morning. And then we will uh, work through the, the, the rest of our various scriptures. Will you stand with me as we read together Psalm 72, just verses 18 and 19. The psalmist writes this, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Father God, glorious Glorious Father of heaven, we give to you this time, asking that as we open your word to see your glory in and through all of it, that God, your glory would shine on us, that that we would see your glory, not just in your word, but that we would know it and experience it in, in our hearts and in our lives today. God, may your glory resound and reverberate out of these walls of this church building today as your people called by your name, saved by faith in your son, Jesus, as we glorify you with our heart, soul, mind and strength this morning. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen. You be seated. Human beings have a tendency to highlight the best characteristics and the best deeds of the people that we love and respect the most. And we tend to minimize the less savory aspects of their lives, don't we? The reformers, uh, the big three, if you will, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, many others are certainly not immune to our posthumous sanctification of their character. Among those who have a true love for Reformation convictions, uh, affirming uh, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, among those who love these things, these convictions that have come out of the Reformation, there is a tendency among us who do that to place on a pedestal and label as heroes men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli. It is true that they fought for the soul of the gospel and the true church of Jesus Christ. Yes, but they were far from perfect. Martin Luther was a little more than uh, rough around the edges. He hardly was ever very gracious to his opponents. He regularly leveled insulting accusations against Catholics, calling even the Pope the Antichrist, uh, accusations uh, against the Anabaptists for their practice of believer's baptism. His theological disdain for Jews was nothing short of anti-Semitic. John Calvin, for all his work to create one of the most helpful systematic theologies in recent centuries, gave his approval to the execution of a heretic, Michael Servetus, who was on the run from the Roman Catholic Church uh, and and passing through uh, Geneva, where uh, Calvin was pastoring. Ulrich Zwingli, like Calvin, gave his approval to the drowning of of the Anabaptist leader, Felix Mons, who was one of Zwingli's own students. Each of the reformers... And those of us, and those that that came after them, they had their faults, they had their flaws, they had their sins. None of them was perfect. And while I believe that not a, I believe that not one of them would approve of our glorification uh, of them or of their works today. However, we still tend to do just that. We put these guys on on pedestals. We we worship them and their works more than we do God sometimes. So today. As we conclude our survey of the five solas of the Reformation with the final sola, soli deo gloria, the one that guards best against the hero worship that we're so prone to do. We look at this 
Soli Deo Gloria, meaning all to God's glory alone. Understanding that it is the Protestant evangelical conviction that all that God does from creation to consummation, all that he does to and through believers in Jesus is all for his glory alone. Now, what about that word glory? What does that word mean? How do we define it? I would uh, take us to the uh, 18th century philosopher, theologian, pastor, Jonathan Edwards, who says this about glory. He says the word glory as applied to God in scripture implies the view or knowledge of God's excellency. The exhibition of glory is to the view of beholders, he says. The manifestation of glory, the emanation or effulgence of brightness has relation to the eye. It is manifest in many places where we read of God's glorifying himself or of his being glorified that the one thing directly intended is a manifesting or making known of his divine greatness and excellency. So when we speak this morning of God's glory, all things being to God's glory, we are speaking simultaneously of his excellency and the reflection, the communication and manifestation of his excellency to us, in us and through us back to him. God's glory, all things working for and to God's glory is a theme persistent in the pages of Scripture, which is why we will be all through the many pages of Scripture this morning. We will but barely scratch the surface of this doctrine of God's glory in Scripture, but I pray that as we do so, when you start reading and studying your Bible in your own private time, your personal study time, that you will be overcome by the constant reminder of our pursuit of God's glory in every page of his word. In understanding that all things are ultimately for God's glory, we begin first with understanding that God is infinitely glorious. God is infinitely glorious. It is his nature. In fact, it is not just his nature, it's his very name. He calls himself several times throughout scripture, the Lord of glory, the King of glory, the God of glory. Psalm 24 says this, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Uh, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him and seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your hands, your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king? King of glory, the Lord of hosts. He is King of glory. Psalm 29 verses 1 through 4. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. We don't look only to the Old Testament to see that the Lord's name is that of glory, King of glory, Lord of glory. We can look also to the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul writes this, I do not cease to give thanks for you. He's speaking to the church at Ephesus, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, who the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. 
1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. The name of glory or glorious Lord is not just given to the Father, but also given to the Son, to Jesus. Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 8 says this. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. This is how God identifies and names himself in these several places of Scripture. And in so naming himself the God of glory, the King of glory, the Lord of glory, the Father of glory, he is making a definitive statement about his own existence. He is the God whose perfections are infinite and awesome. His wonder is second to none, and it is a core characteristic of his nature. He is the Lord of glory. It's not just his name as a part of his nature, but also as a part of his nature and part of his his infinite gloriousness, his glory fills the universe. His glory first fills the earth. Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. There we read this. The heavens declare the glory of of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy, it is rising from the ends of the heavens and and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from his heat, the glory of the Lord in all places of the heavens. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, here in Isaiah's grand vision of God in his throne room, there around the throne, he hears these creatures singing all day, all night, never ceasing this song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We do see the glory of the Lord in creation. Paul tells us as much in Romans chapter 1 that God's divine nature and invisible attributes, that is, his glory, is observable in creation. While we do not agree with the atheists on the existence of God, you would be hard-pressed to find an atheist who isn't in awe of the glory of creation. Everything we see and know about how our bodies work, the movement of our planet in concert with the moon and the sun and the other planets in our solar system, the absolutely perfect conditions of earth for sustaining human life, the properties of various chemicals and compounds around us, the beauty of the stars that fill the night sky, all these are glorious. God has created them all. But we understand that all creation is not glorious of its own accord, but because creation is a diamond through which shines the light of God, uh, the glory of God, we see creation as glorious because it is reflecting God's glory as creator. His glory fills the earth, but his glory also fills all heaven. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 20, verses 26 through 28, there the prophet Ezekiel has a vision of the Lord in his throne room in heaven. And there in Ezekiel 1, we read this. Above the expanse over their heads was the likeness of a throne and appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of, uh, of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. Psalm chapter 13, verses 113, excuse me, Psalm 113, verses 1 through 4. 
Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. So we see that God's glory does not merely fill the created physical world that we can see, but it also fills the realm of his existence, the invisible spiritual realm that we cannot see. From Ezekiel's vision, we find that God's glory in the realm of uh, God's glory in the realm of earth is somehow shaded and veiled in comparison to what Ezekiel sees in heaven. In degree, God's glory is higher than the heavens, Psalm 113 says. It cannot be adequately quantified, says the psalmist. His glory fills the earth, but it also fills heaven to overflowing with inestimable, with the inestimable beauty of the king of glory on his throne. God is infinitely glorious. It is his nature. It's his name. His glory being infinite fills the universe. And also God in his nature as one who is glorious is jealous for his glory. He is jealous for his glory. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11, a passage that is echoed in Isaiah 42, verse 8. Isaiah says this, or the Lord says this through Isaiah, excuse me. Evil shall, but evil shall, excuse me, that's 47. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do this. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Here in this part of Isaiah, God begins to give his promise to bring Israel out of captivity in Babylon, to return them to their homeland in Israel. But he also explains to them why he sent them into captivity in the first place, why he allowed many of them even to die there. Prior to being taken into exile, the people of Israel had allowed the idols of foreign false gods to be kept in the temple alongside the other instruments for the worship of the only true God. The Israelites had given credit to false gods for the things that only the Lord had done among them. And they were stubborn and obstinate enough in their defiling of God and misplacing of the glory that he was due. As a means of leading Israel then to repentance and to vindicate his glory, God sends them into exile to be refined, as Isaiah 48, chapter 10 says. Uh, Chapter 48, verse 10 says, excuse me, where there the Lord says, behold, I have refined you, but not as silver, silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. This he does for his own sake, because God will not share his glory with another. Now, many people see this as an inherently selfish thing of God to do. How can God, who is love, how can he be so centered on himself and his glory? How can, why can he be, isn't jealousy is a bad thing. It's bad for someone to be jealous. So why is it okay for God to be jealous for his glory? Certainly it is wrong for us to desire things for ourselves and for our own sake, because we recognize that other human beings are created with the same intrinsic dignity and, and as image bearers of God as we are. It is wrong for us to be jealous. It is wrong for us to be envious. It is wrong for us to want something that someone else has. But we are merely bearers of God's image. God is the source of all existence. He is infinitely glorious. Were God to give his glory which is rightly his, and by his own existence only he deserves, that would be for God to say that someone or something else was more, was more deserving of that glory than he was. In such a scenario, God would, in not being jealous for his glory, God would be giving his glory to another. He would be elevating that object or that person to a status higher than his own. 
But since we know, Scripture says, that there is no one higher than God, there is no being greater than Him, none more glorious, none more deserving of glory than the source of glory Himself, it is not selfish of God to be jealous for His glory, but perfectly fitting and appropriate. In our sinfulness, we, friends, are natural glory thieves. We think too highly of ourselves and others. We ignore our sin and God's holiness. We think we are worthy of glory and we pursue our own glory, our own praise, our own fame all the time. We show off the excellency of our wealth by hoarding away money that we will never use. We proclaim the greatness of our own lives by surrounding ourselves with insane expressions of luxury. We glorify our children by changing and shifting our priorities to meet their sports and recreation schedules. We unduly glorify our politics and politicians by making loyalty to a party a requisite for Christian fellowship and love and gospel cooperation. We are glory thieves. Friend, knowing that there is only one who deserves glory, only one who is glorious above all others, and that he will not share his glory with anyone else, we do well to rightly rightly fear this Lord of glory, to worship this Lord of glory. We must shift our understanding of what is ultimate in this world from that which is temporary and brings you fame and brings you comfort, shifting from that to the infinite and eternal glory of God. That is all that matters. Recognizing that he alone is holy, he alone is the source of all glory, and that we should revere and worship this glorious God. Stop stealing God's glory. The glory of the Lord, his infinite gloriousness is his nature, but it's also the goal of his work. It's not just who he is, it's also what he does. It's the goal of his work in creation, specifically of the world and humanity. In Psalm chapter 8, verses 1 through 9, we read this. O Lord, O O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still uh, the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Here in Psalm chapter 8, we see that God's glory is in and through all creation. And that in response, all creation and all humanity reflect God's glory. That's the purpose of God's creating the universe and humanity to begin with. God creates not because he's lonely and needs a friend, nor because he's somehow incomplete without us. Friends, know this. God does not need you or I to be satisfied. He was perfectly self-sufficient before he created you or me. And he would continue to be perfectly self-sufficient even if he never created us or anything at all. Rather, God creates the universe as a means of maximizing his glory by reflecting and revealing it to intelligent beings outside of himself who can recognize his wondrous glory, enjoy his glory, and return it to him in worship, in praise, and in love. But don't forget, friends, we are glory thieves. We steal and misappropriate God's glory all 
the time. We sin by glorifying creatures rather than the creator. But God goes further than our sin to continue to glorify himself, not just in creation, but also especially in salvation. God glorifies himself in salvation by glorifying his son, Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, we see there a quotation of Psalm 8, a citation of Psalm 8 by the writer of Hebrews, taking what we just read in Psalm 8 and applying it to Jesus, where he says, There now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, but it has been, testifi- it has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. We see there the author of Hebrews taking this passage from Psalm chapter 8 and now applying it to Christ, who is fully God and fully man, but greater than any man that has ever existed, so that all things are placed under his authority. Jesus, who is the very Son of God, who is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, adds humanity to his person. He's born of the Virgin Mary. He lives sinlessly, always and perfectly, giving the Father glory in every way that we have never given God glory. He dies to bring God's forgiveness to glory thieves like us. And and he is glorified by God for it. Jesus, in his resurrection from the dead, returns to the place of glory and honor that he had with the Father, ruling and reigning and sustaining the universe. For his work on the cross and his resurrection, he is given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 11. In the Gospel of John... Before Jesus' death, he prays in the garden. John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. This is what Jesus says. And when Jesus spoke, had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, Jesus says, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. God glorifies himself in salvation by glorifying his son, but he also glorifies himself salvation by glorifying saved sinners. In Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, Paul, in what is called the golden chain of salvation, writes this. We know that that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, friends, he also glorified. Here in these verses, Paul speaks in the past tense with confidence about future events. This passage, often, as we said before, called the golden chain of salvation, briefly explains to us the process of salvation for all who have faith in Jesus. But a particular notice here to us this morning is the last bit of this process. God glorifies sinners. What does that even mean? 
Simply, God will, in the resurrection, glorify, that is, fill us with glory, uh, our resurrected bodies to resemble that of Christ as he was risen from the dead. We will have glorified bodies like Christ was risen in a glorified body from the dead. There, in eternity then, those of us who know Jesus have been justified by faith in Christ. We will reflect perfectly the glory of the Father because of the redemption that the Son provides being forever sustained by the Spirit of God. Paul speaks of this future event in the past tense. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. He speaks in the past tense because though it has not happened yet, though, friend, you and I do not yet exist in glorified bodies, the God of glory is perfectly capable and trustworthy to do what he has promised. He's so capable, he's so trustworthy, that though Christians, that we are still waiting for our glorification, for our glorified bodies, we can still count our glorification as a past tense certainty. Church, when we bask in the glory of God as redeemed sinners, we are transformed. Our family has, incidentally, in our backyard, a garden bed full of morning glories that we planted earlier in the summer. Morning glories are called such because during the better part of the day, their blooms remain closed. But, as their name would indicate... As soon as the sun begins to peak over the Sandia Mountains each morning, the blooms of the morning glory open as trumpets of royal purples and blues. They are transformed. They open to show what is glorious by the light of the sun and reflect the glory of the sun in their opening to greet it each and every day. Friend, we in a similar way should be changed by the glorious work of God. Knowing that our glorious God is pleased to create us in his image and for his glory. You ought to want to know this God and seek to know him as he seeks to be known. Repent of your sin. Trust in Jesus. Be right with God today that you might know the God of glory and that the God of glory would reflect his glory. Uh, Repeat and, and resound and reverberate his glory through the trumpet of your life. In trusting Jesus, you ought to have a new and grand vision of God's glorious work of grace in saving you. You cannot be truly saved and not be transformed by God's glory. And you are meant to be growing in your love for the God who glorifies himself by saving sinners like you. That's what you're meant for. As a result then of fearing and worshiping and trusting this glorious God, all your life then should be radically transformed by his glory, opened up at the appearance of his glory to reflect his glory and praise and worship back to a listening world. Your life should be opening in the light of God's transformative glory to reveal the royal touch of God's saving grace to a watching world. God is infinitely glorious. And friends, believers, Christians exist for God's glory. We see in the pages of scripture that it is our singular purpose. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 31, Paul writes this to the church. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 12. Uh, uh, Yeah, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Peter says this. 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What's the purpose of our holy living? That others would glorify God. First Peter chapter 4, verse 11. Peter says something similar. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Paul writes this to the church at Thessalonica. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so they may believe what is false. Here he's, he's speaking of sinners who walk in their sin and unrepentance. In order that all may be condemned who did not believe in the truth that had pleasure. Uh, that is the wrong verse. That's chapter 2. I meant Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Verses 11 and 12. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every uh, work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus. Living for God's glory, glorifying God is the singular purpose of the life of the Christian. Turning our attention back to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. We see there that Paul, uh, in the prior uh, verses, uh, prior to this verse, Paul instructing the believers at Corinth to live in a manner that considers the good of other Christians and their growth in Christ above their own. Now, much had been made in the Corinthian church of people's dietary choices there, such that people were drawing lines of holiness around their vegetarianism or their choice of grocery stores. As a result, you laugh, but seriously, it was tearing up the church. As a result, both their fellowship and their worship were compromised and broken. Paul's desire is that the selfishly fractured Corinthian church would mend itself, not by living for themselves, but by living for the glory of God as they pursue God's best for others. So he says, whatever you do, especially as it has to do with what you choose to eat or drink, do it to God's glory and not your reputation. Live in a way that benefits other Christians and their glorifying of God. Why? Because it's our singular purpose. Friend, would you today make the glory of God your singular purpose in life? There's no better pursuit in life than that which God pursues for himself. As God is glorified in all aspects of creation, from the mighty Alps to the lowly aphid, from the vast expanse of space to the indiscernible forces that hold ourselves together, God is glorified in it all. That means that his glory is the aim and purpose of the most significant and most mundane aspects of your life. God's glory is the aim of our gospel sharing, yes, but his glory is also the aim of our most mundane and plain uh, activities throughout the day. Friend, did you know that your daily commute to work is to be for the glory of God? Moms, dads, we are to change diapers and clean up midnight messes of our sick children to the glory of God. Your Monday morning meeting with your staff is to glorify God, and so is your Thursday afternoon round of golf with your friends. Student, your life on campus as a follower of Jesus is to be about glorifying God and your obedience and respect of your parents the same. Friends, God is not just the glorious God of the profound, but also the glorious God of the mundane, of the plain, of the ordinary. 
God is to be just as meaningfully glorified in the brushing of your teeth as he is the singing of hymns of worship. The former does not replace the latter, but rather, Christian, you are meant to approach every moment of your existence with the same singular purpose, to bring God the most glory in all that you do, big or small. How is this possible? First, by recognizing that this is our singular purpose and the goal of our salvation, that God would be glorified. But secondly, we go about it by looking for God's glory in the great and the small. We praise him for his little blessings with the same enthusiasm as the great gifts that he's given to us. We strive in the power of Christ to take every moment and every thought captive for the worship Honor, praise, and enjoyment of God. Christian, glorifying the God of glory is your singular purpose in life. Don't miss it. It's not just our singular purpose, but it will be, as Scripture says, our supreme joy. In Revelation chapter 19, this vision that the Apostle John has of uh, of the end times and of eternity. In Revelation 19, verses 1 through 10, we read this. John says in his vision, After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her, immor- with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, there, these are, true, are the true words of God. And I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Jesus Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. And then in Revelation chapter 22, or 21, excuse me, verses 22 through 27, we have this vision of the eternal city, the place where we will live forever ever in the new heavens and new earth in our resurrected, glorified bodies. And this is what it looks like. John says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God gives it, gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
church, in these two places in Revelation, we have a sneak peek. We have a sneak preview of our lives in eternity. The song of the redeemed in Christ will forever be salvation, glory, and power to our God. The very singing of this song is to magnify and reflect God's infinite glory back to him for all eternity. If you don't like singing songs of glory to God now, you're going to hate heaven. There will be no end to our praise of the Lord of glory in eternity. God's glory was his intention and purpose in creating the universe. And it will be the never ending joy of those who are saved by his grace through faith in Jesus to sing his glory forever. Even the place of our worship, the new city, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth. Even the place of our worship is lit by the glory of God. Revelation 22, 20, verse 23 says uh, that in the resurrection city, this new Jerusalem, where risen believers will dwell forever with the Lord, that there in that place, there's no need of sun or moon to shine upon it. Why? Because the glory of the Lord, the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. The apostle John here says that the sun and the moon can't hold a candle to the glory of God that shines through the risen Jesus. So Christian When God gloriously raises you from the dead on the day Christ returns, he will raise you to live forever in a place that is literally lit up with his glory. And there is in that and there in that place, you will never tire of his excellency. You will never run short of songs to sing. Your tongue will never grow weary of the praises uh, that it will lift to Christ the king. And your heart will never cease to be filled with to overflowing with the love of God's glory. Church, let us then, let us get about glorifying God best and enjoying him most by proclaiming the most glorifying thing God has ever done in human history. Let us glorify God best and enjoy him most by declaring that Jesus saves sinners, glory thieves who have turned their backs on a glorious God. And he, through his death and our place and resurrection from the dead, has made a way that we might be saved by faith in Christ. Glory thieves no more. We are now glory returners. This is the song of joyful praise that we will sing forever in the presence of God and of Jesus, our perfect Passover lamb. We will sing the glory of the gospel for eternity. So then let us get on with the joy of glorifying God now by singing his praises to the world as we bring the lost to the feet of Jesus, the Lord of glory, crucified for sinners. Jonathan Edwards, in what is possibly my favorite work of his, a a longer dissertation called God's End in Creation, says this. In the creatures knowing, esteeming, loving, rejoicing in, and praising God, the glory of God is both exhibited and acknowledged. His fullness is received and returned. Here is both an emanation, that is God emanates his glory, and a remination, that is those who receive God's glory are giving it back, they're reverberating it back to him. The refulgence shines upon and into the creature and is reflected back to the luminary. The beams of glory come from God and are something of God and are refunded back again to their original. So that in this process, the whole is of God and in God. And to God. And God is the beginning and the middle and the end in this affair. Friend, are these words of Jonathan Edwards true in your life? 
Christian, is all of your life clearly of and in and to God and for his glory? Church, does our community, those that live around us in the neighborhoods, know us, know for certain that Jesus Christ, our King and Redeemer, is the beginning, middle, and end of every affair of the life and ministry of our church? Oh, how I pray that all my life would be to God's glory alone. How I hope that you, Christian, would fall in love with the supreme joy of glorifying God in all that you do. It's what you were made for. How I long for our little family of faith here at First West to be known, not for all the good things that we do, but for the all-consuming glory of of the God who works good things through us. May people not know us because of who we are and what we do. May they, may they know us as those who reflect and, and shine and, and reverberate the glory of God into a broken, hurting, lost world.